0: Drawing from his 20-year background in finance and investing to help you make sense of your money matters. New focus on wealth. Get a new focus
1: on personal finance, wealth management, Wall Street, and the economy. Now your host for new focus on wealth, Chad Burton. Welcome into the show. I'm your host, Chad Burton, certified financial planner. If you have a money question for the show, shoot me an email. It's chad at chadburton.com. That's chad at chadburton.com. You can find out more about me, my team of analysts and certified financial planner practitioners, and all of the stuff we do for taxes, state planning, investment advice—it's all there at chevron. All right, uh, I'm going to continue on a bit of a conversation that I started yesterday. And this may make people that really, really love real estate and hate stocks mad. Well, and it should because you need you need both in your life. I love both stocks and real estate, but I love stocks more. <laughs> um. And he, here's why. I mean, let me tell you a story. This is a story that you hear quite often, especially when you're, if you're down in the Bay Area. I bought a home in 1980 for 200,000 and just sold it for over $2 million. What a rate of return that is, right? Bought a home in 1980 for 200, just sold it for $2 million. Okay. That sounds like it's pretty amazing return, right? Let's step back and really calculate what that return is. And what's funny is a lot of people that own real estate can't ever really fully calculate the return. Because every time you put money into fixing something, a new roof, a remodel, those types of things, it's it's an expense. You have to somehow keep track of that and deduct that off the final sale price. And... The only time that it can help you out is if it's a significant improvement. You can't paint your home and then you know write that off or increase your cost basis. That's not going to work now, if you make a significant improvement to it, that can add to the cost basis and help reduce taxes when you sell it. Let's just look at what the rule of seventy two is to kind of help you out visualize this. So if you haven't heard of the rule of seventy two like you used to talk about it all the time and haven't lately so Let's just talk about it now. Rule of 72. If you take the number 72 and you divide it by whatever rate of return you're expecting, that's going to tell you how long it's going to take your money to double. So if you think that you're going to earn 10% on something, if you divide 72 by 10, you get 7.2. That means that that investment should double in value every 7.2 years. Okay? So, what rate of return does it approximately need to double every 10 years? Well, let's just say a 7% rate of return. If you divide 72 by seven, there you go. That's what you're going to end up with. It's not exact, but because uh, it's 72 divided by seven, but that is how long it's going to take your money to double. 72 divided by seven is 10.28 years. Mm-hmm. All right. So, let's just call it. 10 years. So the stock market historically, when you look at long periods of time, talking about 15 plus years, has averaged over 10%. Okay? So that's that's number one. But in this scenario, I'm using a rate of return slightly over seven so that money doubles every 10 years. So if you bought that home for 200000 in 1980, It's earning a little over 7%. By 1990, it should be worth 400,000. By the year 2000, it should be worth 800,000. By 2010, the home should have been worth 1.6 million. And by 2020, when you're selling it right now, it should have been worth $3.2 million. And that's a rate of return that's been less than stocks over that period of time, well less than stocks. That's a little over 7% rate of return versus what stocks have actually done. So that story that you hear of 1980 for 200,000, they just sold over 2 million. It's not that impressive. If you look at the actual rate of return, if that you could have get on other investments. Now it's one thing if it's a home that you live in, right? But a lot of people do this with vacation homes and rental properties and things like that. So then the math gets a little bit tougher on a va- on a, on a rental property. You track your expenses and then you have your net income so you have to like kind of create a second bucket on where is that net income the positive cash flow being invested if you're renting to, renting it out right and so then that's the way that potentially that real estate could keep up with stocks because in this case it didn't but the way that real estate can keep up with stocks is if you get price appreciation Plus some positive cash flow that you can use to invest out elsewhere. That means you have to take more risk. It means you have to borrow money. You take some of your own money, let's say 30% down, you get a loan. And you're leveraging your down payment, your 30% down payment with the bank's money. And then you get a renter in there and then they pay it off for you. So they pay off the debt and the value of the home and pre- appreciates at the same time. That's called the leverage piece. And you got some positive cash flow, hopefully. Now it's harder and harder to get positive cash flow in that scenario right now because prices are so high. But in the, in the stock market, it would have been simple. If you'd invested that 200K in 1980 and just the S&P 500, you'd have way more money. If you, Especially if you would have reinvested the dividends. You also had no headaches besides the occasional correction that might have made you lose a little sleep. It's zero headaches. And if you wanted to trim or sell a little bit to pay for something you just push a button. On a home, it's totally different. I've told you stories of of that I've heard over the years of from clients that own rental properties. I would say most are good experiences, but there's that couple of experiences that turn a lot of people off from even wanting to deal with being a landlord. That's why they get really good property managers. So, a couple of the stories in recent history that I've told you about before where um, a guy, his two brothers and father were accumulating several rental properties. They were you know, really handy. They would buy a home, they'd fix it up and they'd rent it out. They were accumulating a family business of rentals. And they had a couple of really bad deals in a row. One, they found out that the people that were in the home, uh, let their parent essentially use one of the main bathrooms as its own home. So it was the hallway bathroom, and they let the parrot basically live in this thing. And this thing chewed giant holes in the sheetrock and basically nested inside the house. And in that scenario, that couple actually ended up getting a little bit into dr- into drugs. Um, they found that out because then when they went to patch a hole in the garage wall, they opened up the sheetrock, and essentially a whole bunch of needles fell out of the wall. And they had to call Hazmat and have those needles picked up. And then they had to gut the garage. They had to open up the walls, anywhere there was holes to see what the heck was going on. They had to do a brand new bathroom. So when people have rental properties and they they go through situations like that, and if you rent a home out for like 20, 30 years, you will go through situations like that. Most of the time, most people I know get property managers so that they deal with it. But there's some really bad property managers out there. Um, in fact, I'm looking for a new property manager for a client that's down in San Jose that has a fourplex. And it's like the people in the fourplex have been there so long, they still call the owners anyway. And then the property manager's done some work for them that they call in a contractor to fix a kitchen and a stove. And they do it wrong, it screws up. And then the, the owner's going in and doing it anyway. So they're just tired of owning the thing. They're almost 80 years old. And the taxes are onerous if they sell it. Might as well wait for the first person to die so they get a step up in basis and then the survivor can sell it in this case. But again, getting a little bit of off track. Um, there, there's a lot of horror stories. Rob Black will tell you a, a crazy story on a home that he owns in North Carolina where the guy went a little nuts. Took a while to get out and then the house was pretty disgusting once he they got the renter out finally. Um, stocks are just way easier and they offer better returns over a longer period of time, feel like 15 to 20 years. And I'll talk a little bit more about it coming after the break. I still own rental properties. I still love real estate, but let's be realistic about the returns. Talking a little bit about real estate, which I love. I mean, the idea that um, you can diversify your assets because everybody's plugging money away into their 401k. You can put in $19,000 pre-tax or $19,000 post-tax into Roth 401ks these days. There's an extra catch-up provision if you're over 50. Um, and that's all going into stocks. And you can employer match, it goes into stocks. And you have RSUs or, or you know non-qualified stock options, incentive stock options going into stock. You can do the mega Roth 401k for additional savings. That's where you put in after-tax and get that converted to a Roth growing tax-free in stocks. There's so much you can do these days with your 401k. It's all going into stocks. It's great because stocks trounce real estate over time. It really, truly does. Um, But when it comes to income, stocks don't yield current income quite as much. You have, you know, generally a stock portfolio is going to be yielding somewhere around 2%. Now, you can get higher yield than that on some stocks. But if you look at like the ATTs in the world where they're yielding higher, a lot of times there's way too much leverage going on and you got to look at free cash flow numbers and things like that. So if your goal is to retire at the point when you have enough passive income from all of your investments, passive income from stocks, interest from your bonds, and income from your real estate, you kind of need the real estate in there at some point to get you to that passive income level. The other good thing about real estate is when you do have income from real estate, you have the depreciation of the home to help offset the taxes on that income. So if you buy, uh, let's say you buy something for a half a million dollars and you calculate what the cost of the building on that land is, you take the building in a residential rental property and you divide it by 27.5 and that's how much you could depreciate each year. And that means that you can, if you have positive cash flow from that rental property you can reduce the taxation of that because if the positive cash flow is higher than the depreciation, then you're only taxed on the difference. A lot of people go into real estate and once they write off their expenses and their depreciation, even though they have income, they have positive cash flow, they actually have a loss in their tax return. And they think that's really cool. But if you make over about 150 grand a year, you actually can't use that Loss against your other income. It gets suspended and you can only use it until you can uh, sell that property. So that's a big issue that I see too is people like, oh, well, it's, you know, yeah, it's, it's negative cash flow after I write everything off, but that's okay because I have high income and it's just a, another write off for me. It's not helping you right now. It's not. So sometimes people kind of have to balance out a really good, real estate deal that is really bought for price appreciation, but it's not doing very well for you in terms of positive cash flow, or it's actually a loss on that Schedule E that you file with your tax return. So you go do another deal where it's you know really nice positive cash flow so that it helps the tax loss on one. It won't carry through to your other income from your job, but it might help you on your other rental property. That makes sense. You get So you got to analyze your tax return as you move forward and you do different real estate deals. But getting back to that rule of 72, whenever somebody tells you, okay, I bought a home or my parents bought a home in 1980 for X and now they sold it for you know millions of dollars, just go back in your brain. And what I always do is go calculate, okay, 1980, everything should double every 10 years and that's getting at least 7% on your money. So you can just calculate in your head if well say they said they bought it in 1980 for 100 grand. By 1990 it should have been worth 200 grand. By the year 2000 it should have been worth 400 grand. By the year 2010 it should have been worth 800 grand and by 2020 it should be worth 1.6 million. See what I'm saying? So you, you can kind of work backwards and say okay, that's that's a normal rate of return. If you don't look at it, you say 1980 for 200 then they just sold it for 2 million dollars. That sounds pretty amazing. But what they don't do is they don't go back and tell you every time they had to repaint the home, every time they had to put new carpet in it, every time they had to put a new roof on it. That eats into the return. And so people that are in love with real estate kind of forget to do that. So if you put side by side $200,000 in stocks and reinvest the dividends over that period of time, and $200,000 into a, uh, a piece of real estate in 1980... And uh, every time you had to fix something, you deposit more money into the stock portfolio so that it's equal, you've put money into it, the stock portfolio would have killed it over time. Absolutely killed it. So just keep that in mind when people talk about real estate. What real estate where it works and keeps up with stocks is like I said, when you can put 20-30% down, get a traditional 30-year loan, And get a really good renter in there, and after the rental pays, you know the renter pays you or your property manager, and you deduct all of the costs that you have. You know, don't forget HOA fees, condo fees if it's a condo, no thank you, Um, and property manager fees, insurance, taxes, all of that kind of stuff. If you have positive cash flow, that you have, then to reinvest in something else. Then you're levered, right? You have you're using mostly the bank's money to get into a highly valuable asset. And the value of that's probably only going to grow over a 15, 20 year period at, you know, probably around 5 or 6% at the most. Um, but you're levered and somebody else is paying it off for you. So you don't have all your money. So it's the leverage that helps you, but that also means additional risk. It also means the occasional horror story when it comes to renters. Yeah. Yesterday, we were talking about second homes are overrated. This article by Alexis Leonidas, or Leondas. I'm going to butcher her name every single time. Leonidas, what's that from? Uh, the 3000 movie? Anyway, that was King Leonidas. (laughs) I don't know. We got 30 seconds left in this, but... um, the, this is something that I'm seeing more and more people do is there's a lot of cash out there in the market. So you saw all of these seasonal vacation home places just skyrocket seven to 10% more annual growth in the last few years in seasonal vacation home areas, um, than other places around the country. So real estate prices have skyrocketed everywhere. Interest rates are extremely low uh we are now getting to the point where that caused housing prices to go up so much you're still yeah rates are super low on your mortgage but now you're having to get a much higher mortgage to buy that property and that's what people look at into in terms of affordability and i tell you what rates just dropped recently for it's really really odd like it's the stock market's telling us one thing being up 16 17% for the year the bond market rallied and it w- which means it's an inverse situation. Bound market rallied, interest rates go down. So if you're going to do anything mortgage-wise, do it now. If you're doing any swapping, you know, do it now because it's the mortgage that matters in the long run if you're staying somewhere for a long period of time. But we'll get back to talking about second homes, often overrated. And it's something that I see people often regret. Say hello to a pass that gives you endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes, or fees. You might call it the suitcases Always Packed Pass. Or the Wait, I Get to Choose from 100,000 Trips Pass. The Willoughby, the Beach, City, Mountains are all three pass. Or you could just call it what we call it, the Inspirato Pass. Endless travel for $2,500 per month with no nightly rates, taxes or fees. Learn more at inspiratopass.com. All right, talking about real estate and, and this idea of a second home. And I've seen you know in the 28 years that I've been doing this, um, I've, I've seen a lot of periods of time where people will buy a second home and then after about three to five years, they're like, eh. Just not going as much, and when I go, I don't really enjoy it because I'm working on it and it's like a, it's like another job and I'd rather just kind of travel in different areas um, I kind of want personally when I get to be you know more mobile when we have got a kind of a spread between my youngest teenager which is so I've got you know 21 eighteen and 16 and then a five year old so, got a while to be somewhat mobile, but I can see uh, having sm- smaller homes and better seasonal areas. Like, I'm really intrigued with Canada right now, and all the untouched areas in Canada in terms of lakes and ski areas and things like that. Um, but I like the seasons. Like, I by the time September October rolls around, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to put the boat away because I wake surf all the time with the family almost every night on the lake. And, but I'm kind of, you know, you got to pull it out, you got to wipe it down and mm, I'm ready for the snow. I'm ready to get some projects done and before, you know, October, November, and then I'm ready for snow by Thanksgiving. I'm like, okay, let's go snowboarding. That's just what I love to do. And kind of in the areas that we are now, it's getting crowded. The lake's getting crowded. Everybody bought jet skis and boats with their stimulus packages and PPP loans this year. and then. A lot of people moved from California into the ski resort that I go to all the time. And then with COVID, they were only loading over two chairs. so The lines were just awful this year. So it's, it's kind of, I want to go to places that are more untouched, right? Um, is, in terms of living, uh, that's kind of a downsizing situation too. But a lot of people go, well, I like going to, um, you know, Big Sur all the time. So I'm going to buy a second home or Tahoe or whatever it may be. And then they buy it, and then they kind of get sick of paying property taxes on it because they're not using it as much as they thought. And then their kids were going with them through high school, but they're in college; they never want to go right now. Um, or it was you, your kids, and the young grandkids, and the grand young grandkids became teenagers. Now they don't want to go as much anymore, and so it's just not working for the family much anymore. And you're like, all right, well we're going to sell it because it's really just a cash outflow; it's not producing any income. And we would rather now travel to other places and be more mobile, whether it's with Airbnb or a much higher end version of that, which is like Inspirato. That's something I do, Inspirato. You can do a travel pass and travel really nice places every couple of weeks for a fixed amount per year. Um, And and the cost tends to be a little bit cheaper than owning a really high-end vacation home too, by the way. If you're talking about only really nice places in like California. So there's been just a huge run up in prices. We all know what Tahoe has been like, but even odd places in Arizona um, that I was talking about in this article yesterday Um, in, in Pennsylvania, these double digit returns in places that like show low Arizona, never heard of it. Apparently it's a picturesque area near the white mountains in Arizona where the average home price is up almost 25% to 292150 Sounds pretty cheap, right? Have you been to Arizona in August? Oh, no, thank you. So I would have to have another place to live besides that. So a lot of these places have gone up because, I mean, look, almost every business owner I know did a PPP loan last year in March and April because it seemed like we were going into another great recession. Market dropped over forty percent in some asset classes, forty-five or more, and things got shut down. And nobody knew how bad it was going to get. And so all of a sudden, you get these PPP loans done. They get the cash. They keep people hired. Never laid anybody off. And then business all of a sudden skyrockets, and a lot of cash is out there in the market right now because of that. So people are putting that cash to work. So. Let's say you got a second home um, and you're thinking about renting that out because you're not using it as much. Well, you've got to make sure that you know any local limitations to do that because a lot of places have just outlawed essentially short-term rental properties, like less than 30 days in some cases. Um, The other thing to think about if you're looking at a second home is higher rates on mortgages. The other thing you need to think about too is if you're not treating it as a rental property and it is truly a second home that you're going to use for over 15 days a year, well, mortgage deduction is limited now, everyone. You got you to gotta realize that. The mortgage interest deduction is a tax deduction that for mortgage interest paid on the first million dollars of mortgage debt. But homeowners who bought houses after December 15, 2017 can deduct interest only on the seven, first $750,000 of mortgage debt. And then you need to be itemizing on your tax return to do that anyway. So between the lower mortgage interest deduction from the 2017 Tax Act and the higher standard deduction, a lot of people aren't able to write off their second homes if they're you know, using it quite a bit. So what are those rules? There's a couple One, This article is pretty good on going over it. And you can find even information on this in places like Investopedia when I was looking at it. Your home that you had, your you know vacation rental home, well, if it's rented for more than 15 days and used for less than 14 days, in this case, the property is considered a rental property and the rental activities are viewed as a business. All rental income must be reported to the IRS and the owner can deduct rental expenses including fees paid to property managers, insurance premiums, maintenance expenses, mortgage interest, property taxes, utilities that you pay, and the depreciation I talked about. The depreciation, remember, is the value of the structure divided by 27 and a half. That's what you can deduct annually and if you if it's got a mixed use situation the amount of rental expenses that could be deducted is based on the percentage of days that the vacation home was rented out um divided by the number of the days the home was rented out uh in the, of the total days that were used so it's it's prorated amount if you're doing a mixed use thing and that's if you're renting it for more than 15 days and you're using it for less than 14 days So for example, if a vacation home had 120 total days of use and 100 of those days were rented days to other people, then 83% of the expenses, so you just divide 100 rental days divided by 120 total days of use can be deducted again. So it's just the math. Now let's say the owner uses the property for more than 14 days or 10% of the total days the home was rented. So if personal days exceed 14 days or 10% of the number of days the home is rented, whichever is greater, the IRS considers the property a personal residence and rental loss cannot be deducted. Rental expenses up to the level of rental income can still be deducted, but you're not going to be able to like take depreciation, carry that through and use that to offset other passive income. And then again, if you have over 150000 if it's a loss, you can't use that against your other income like wages from work. So. You've gotta you've gotta truly think about, you know, what you're getting out of this. And then if you're not using it as much and it's say like time to turn it into a rental property. Uh, like, hey, I want to do a high-end Airbnb in my city. And staying where I am and with a house that's been under construction, and yet again, my move in date has been put off two weeks. So I've been floating around in Airbnbs and things like that. When traveling with the family, while this big, huge construction project is happening on my house, I can tell you that where I live, there's a very big shortage of higher, at you know, nicer four or five bedroom Airbnb options. It's just that there is. I mean, that could be if if I feel like prices come down a little bit and things look attractive, that might be my next style of investment property. But then the risk there is is that you get into a neighborhood and they shut down any short-term rental property. So think about that. Um, And also what I see too is that when people retire, you might want to stay a little bit more uh, before you tie yourself to a second home and and one place to go. You got to kind of think ahead and say, Ooh, yeah, my kids are getting married. So I might have grandkids here in a little while. And then I see a lot of people's travel plans change about around their family. They want to go see the new grandkids and they even go stay for a month or two at a time to help um, the parents, especially if both parents are working, especially in time of uh, COVID where, gosh, you had a really tough time for families with young kids that both worked because... It's like you're trying to get your kids into Zoom classes and manage their day and working from home. And a lot of people called in their parents. The grandparents were in there helping the kids. So I'd be very, very cautious, especially at today's prices, on going picking up your vacation home, your second home, because the price of real estate does not keep up with stocks Especially if you deduct your property taxes and your maintenance and, and all those other things. You'd be better off likely investing that money or keeping it invested in a balanced portfolio and drawing on it occasionally to stay in really nice places all over the country between Airbnb options, VBRO, Inspirado, and places like that. And, you know, especially if you're newly retired, you don't know what the next you don't know what you're gonna fully, fully enjoy. So take some time, be flexible and figure out what you're really going to like when it comes to retirement. Let's talk a little bit about estate planning because basically in most states, California, Oregon, not necessarily Washington, having a living trust is very important to help avoid probate. So on retirement accounts and things like annuities and life insurance, you can name beneficiaries which help avoid probate. But when it comes to your brokerage accounts, your real estate, things like that, you need a living trust so that if you pass away, you're not tied up for... A long, long, long period of time in court arguing and open for, you know, all sorts of issues. So a trust helps avoid probate. Then you have healthcare directives and power of attorney to help manage issues while you're alive. Everybody needs those foundational documents. But a lot of people are asking now, hey, I've got all, you know, my company that I work for has done extremely well. I've got all the stock. I've got my 401k. I've got my real estate. Everything's up in value. And, I keep hearing this talk of Biden wanting to increase estate taxes. And right now, essentially, you have about $11.7 million each person that could pass on to your heirs while you're living or after you die, or in a combination of that, without having any estate taxes due. That is likely to be cut in half in the coming future. It was only $650,000 when I got into the business in 1993. That's how much we had to... uh, Anything over that, we had to pay for... We had to deal with estate planning and estate taxes. So what are some common techniques that people are doing now in order to use up some of the credit and, and make some large gifts? Well... If you have, first of all, to do any of this, you really need a lot of liquid outsets outside of your retirement account. So, if all you own is your home and large 401k that's never been taxed, it's really hard to do some of this stuff. So, that's one thing. 529 plans are a big tool if you have grandkids. If you have grandkids and you got to be careful to say, I'm either going to fully fund this cost because if you don't and the parents aren't making much money, you might screw up financial aid. So, you have to consider that and work with an advisor. But in a 529 plan, you could essentially, if you're a married couple, give five years worth of $30,000 gifts all up front into a 529 plan for a grandchild. After five years, it's outside of your estate, but you still control the money. If all else fails, you can always pull it back into your estate and just pay taxes and penalties on the growth. So that's one good thing there. And then that helps money grow tax-free for education. There's also other couple of trusts that you might consider if you're trying to do some family planning uh one trust that's pretty interesting that we do quite a bit of is called a spousal lifetime access trust. So let's say you have a married couple worth, you know, millions of dollars and they're worried about using some of their 11.7 million dollars now. Well, let's say they've got a lot of community property. Let's say there's they they want to do at least 5 million dollars of gifting each and use that up now so that if they gift 5 million dollars they've used some of their credit and all of the future growth on that money is outside of their estate. They don't want to necessarily give it directly to anybody now. They want to maintain control of it, but they want to get future growth out of the estate because that future growth is going to be get hit with really high estate taxes. So maybe one spouse does what's called a spousal lifetime access trust where they take, I don't know, a couple, let's say $5 million. They put it into a trust. And what that trust essentially says is that this money is eventually for our kids. This money is eventually for our kids. It remains invested however you want, but the money is invested for the kids and it's outside of our state for state tax purposes. But my spouse, honey, in case you need extra income and all of our other assets fail, you could actually get income from this trust while you're alive if we need to. But for now, we're going to put it in there. We're going to invest the money. Yeah, we'll personally pay taxes on that. But at some point, we could turn it off and either have the trust or the beneficiaries pay taxes. But it, it gets it outside of your estate because if you look at the stock market, things tend to double every 10 years on average. So if you get it out 5 million now, in 10 years, it's going to be 10 million. And in another 10 years, it's going to be $20 million. It's outside of your estate, not getting hit with 50%, in some cases, estate taxes. So it also gives the ability to get income back to one of the spouses if you know you have a bunch of if you go through a really tough economic time where a lot of your other assets you know just drastically drop in value and need the income now there's always the issues of what if you guys get divorced and st- or other things like that that you got to carefully consider um, other trusts that you kind of do in combination with that are generation skipping trusts where you put a bunch of money in trust for your kids and that way, you don't necessarily have... You don't have to tell them about it, but at least it gets some of the assets and, and highly growing assets out of the estate. And it, at some point, you can start you know getting money to the children and have it last for their lives and eventually go to your grandkids. On top of that, there's Islet's Irrevocable Life Insurance Trust where you set up a trust that owns life insurance on one or both of you at the same time. You gift... Uh, the premiums to the islet, and then the islet owns and buys the life insurance on you. And that goes 100% tax-free to the heirs that helps offset any estate tax that are done. And a lot of these things are done in tandem. For example, if you're giving a really aggressive, you know, highly speculative, highly appreciated stock into a GST or a SLAT, where you're taking a huge risk to use what's called a lifetime credit or a big chunk of that, And so oftentimes, in case we're trying to deal with, well, what if this company fails or doesn't do well, we might use some life insurance to help hedge and protect the amount that you've gifted. And so that's when life insurance can be used as a pretty pretty good tax-efficient, leveraged estate planning tool. And there's other things out there like rolling grants. If you have highly appreciated stock, you put it into a, a grant to retain annuity trust and, and, you know, you take a certain amount of income. Any future amount above that goes into trust for kids. Those are a bit under attack right now, I would say. So we're on pause doing those. Uh, but lots of estate planning options. And, and look, it's, it, we're already over seven months into this year. So you don't have a lot of time to take advantage of that. If you need help with your financial planning, estate planning, retirement planning, you can find me at chadburton.com and request an appointment. That's chadburton.com. Thanks for listening. Please tell a friend about the show, chadburton.com. You can find all the links to the podcast at various platforms. It's all there. Have a great day.